I just reminded uh, of something that Scott prayed this morning during worship, both services. Just we're, we're anxious to hear from you, God. And I think that's true about all of us, but for some of us, it might might feel like we're we're even more anxious to hear from. Him. And that's going on around all, all of us all the time. You know, I mentioned Rich, Bryce, and Kevin. Those are the ones you know about. There's others that they haven't said anything. They're nervous to say something. But there's people around you all the time that need the Lord and, and are anxious to hear from them. Paul's going to remind us of that. Uh, Romans chapter 16. He's going to tell you about how we end well. And there, I, I just gave it away. We end well, right? When it comes to people. Uh, so I kind of just gave it away, but uh, we're going to get into that and get, actually go through the chapter here in a second, but let's pray first. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how you taught Paul and what you had him write, and I pray, Lord, that it would be uh, applicable to us this morning, that we might take it personally. And Lord, we thank you for Rich, and we're glad that he's watching down on us with you right now. No more medical issues at the party. And so we thank you for that. And we continue to pray for Bryce and Kevin. Lord, bring healing. And then for those maybe haven't said anything or don't know, but really need you and need to hear from you. Pray that would happen this morning in our time. Maybe may it honor and glorify your son. And we pray your, your guidance of your spirit on it as well. And all God's people said in agreement. Amen. Amen. Uh, look at the top of your outline. It says, uh, Romans chapter 16, end well. I started reading through the chapter a few weeks ago and, and I was thinking to myself, how's he going to end this? Uh, and, and really, as I read through it, I, I see Paul talking about how do you end well. And, and it's kind of in a maybe a, a secondary way we're going to look at it. We're going to have 16 straight verses of list of people he wants to thank and people he wants the church in Rome to greet. But it made me think about ending well. Like, how do you end well? There's a lot of things that we do with our time, a lot of endeavors, a lot of relationships. And, you know, the Bible says, uh, Ecclesiastes, there's a season for everything. And sometimes the season ends. Uh, I've, I've been um, thinking about what does ending well look like? Uh, because I've watched a lot of people end. Either a job or end life. Uh, end many things. And uh, to me, it's, it's a little disconcerting how jobs end these days. And I, I don't know about your industry, right? I know about one industry, right? Your industry, maybe you're an accountant or you're in construction or you're you know, a computer guy. Who knows what they do, right? Uh, there's all these different things that people can do. Uh, but I know, I know about one industry. You, know, you, you fill out an official form and say name, address, uh, occupation. And it has a list. And you check a box and you're down accountant, you know, construction. You're the one I have to check? Clergy, which is such a sanitary word, or something. it's such a weird word. Like, I'm clergy. That's of all the things that you could think of. I, 
can't even say ministry or pastor or just clergy. All right, check. All right. Uh, you know, in, in my industry, I know how things end generally, but in your industry, for some of you, I've had a small taste of being out in a secular job, and, and I'm amazed at how sometimes people will end things. If it starts to not work or somebody implies that maybe it's time for them to move on or they're going to go do something else or, uh, Lord forbid, they're actually looking for another job and all of a sudden you're terminated on the spot. Or something goes wrong and you're sick and all of a sudden now you have three reviews three weeks in a row and somehow they're negative reviews and now they're justified in letting you go. Well, you had three reviews, they were all bad, so it's time for you to go. And sometimes in the, when a job ends, uh, they have somebody from the company escort you to your desk and you get your things and then they escort you off the property as if, as if you're going to do something inappropriate, like they can't trust you. I had to do that once. And I, it didn't end well and then they, I wrote them a letter and they didn't like my letter. So I was brought into a meeting and said, yeah, it's over. So-and-so is going to escort you to your desk, and then you're going to grab your things, and they're going to escort you out of the property. Like, well, we really don't have to do that. There's nothing at risk here. I'm not taking anything. I'm not breaking anything. I, I can go grab my lunch bag and, you know, my watch or whatever and walk out to the car on my own. Oh, no, this is policy. It's almost like we've learned how to make a policy for ending poorly. And in my industry, in clergy, I have been appalled to see how sometimes churches will actually treat people when it's ending. No severance, no medical, no time, all kinds of things. And I've always thought to myself, this is so backwards. We're Christians. We believe in the Lord. We should be getting along with each other. Even if we're going to part ways... Part ways well. Let's end well. And I've been amazed to watch so many churches and, and how they let people go. And really watched it in so many different scenarios that I've been in. I was in one church and uh, we would joke, we had staff meeting, 120 people. Large church, right? That's just your staff meeting, right? You want to buy a bagel and a juice for 120 people, right? You're at a thousand bucks just for a little snack. Uh, and we used to joke as we we're leaving our office, hey, you coming? We got to go see who's fired this week. Because every week, somebody wasn't leaving well, wasn't ending well. And every once in a while, you see somebody leave well. But it's coming rarer and rarer. And I'm in that environment for quite a while. And my wife and I start thinking, I think it's time to go. Now, what do I tell him? How much do I tell him? When do I tell him? Because I don't want to get walked to my car. I mean, if I don't have a full plan yet, what do I do? I'll never forget Tim Lundy. Directional leader and lead pastor, Fellowship Bible Church, Little Rock, Arkansas. He sits down with me and says, what do you want to do? And I'm scared to death. And we start talking, and the more we talk, the safer I feel. 
And the safer I feel, the more we talk. And I find out they want to end well. He wants me to stay like nine months and work on some things before I leave. It's like, wow, I don't have to leave tomorrow. Nine months turns into 12 months, and 12 months turns into 15 months, and all of a sudden we're there for a long time. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, why am I not one of the people each week that's being let go at staff meeting? And over the course of that 15 months or so, I started to realize what Tim and I were doing, the dance that we were doing was we were both trying to end well. Because I watched people lose their job and walk and go, and I started thinking, why is that not happening to me? See, Tim and I were having discussions like, what's best for the church? What's best for the students? What's best for the family? What's best for the long term? What's best for the people involved? I see, ending well is a lost art. And most people's emotions and passions and uh, fears get in the way, and we take abrupt action. And I want you to see how Paul does it. Because it's very interesting what Paul does in the book of Romans as a whole. You know, uh, Romans starts with Paul getting into deep theology and and explaining very intricate things and foundational, non-negotiable things about God. In fact, he he spends 10 plus-ish chapters talking about who is God. It's just here's the first thing you need to know. You need to know who God is, and we're going to walk through that. And then the last few chapters or so, the last few weeks, he started to talk a little bit about you, about me. Like, who are we? Here's all this stuff about God. Now you need to know a little bit about yourself. And then last chapter, chapter 15 and chapter 16 today on our way out, he's going to say, now, here's your end game. People. You ever heard the phrase, well, you know, at the end of the day, you ever heard somebody say that? You know, you know people that say, I know a few people that say it too often, right? It's like every conversation, you know, you know at the end of the day. Or, or uh, this one, you know, when it's all said and done. Really, I don't think it's ever all said and done. I always have something more to say, and it never feels like we're done. When is all said and done, and when is the end of the day? You know, at the end of the day, I never see anybody, and there's nothing going on. Half the time, I don't know when I've fallen asleep. But the other one that you hear, the third one, is, is what's your end game? And I think as Christians, it's a great question. And Paul really walks through the whole book of Romans, probably his deepest theological work, and he gets to what is our end game. You see, if you ask most Christians, if you pull a Christian aside and you say, hey, what's, what's, as, as a Christian, what's your end game? What, what are you hoping? You're hoping that you will eventually make it to heaven right we think that's the end game it's not it's got a theological problem with what most christians believe is the end game getting to heaven because jesus said this he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand right when somebody says you know the problem at hand when they use that phrase what do you know about the problem it's now it's right in front of your face. You, you, we have to deal it with it. We need to address it because it's current. 
Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right in front of your face. It's current. It is now. How do you understand that? It's because most people think that heaven is something that happens after you die, then you go to heaven. And there's pearly gates and Peter there, and they look at a list, or I don't know. You know, most of that stuff's made up anyways. <laughs> you said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You start to think about it. What is the key piece of heaven? What's the maybe the most true thing about heaven? You will be in direct proximity to God. And Jesus says, well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It makes sense to me now because we have a God who wants to be here. His his son comes to the planet to be in direct proximity. When he leaves, he says, don't worry, I'm sending you a helper. who will be with you always, your Holy Spirit, always with you, God, with us, direct proximity. You see, we can start experiencing heaven now, if it's at hand, by pursuing being close to God and reaching out to him. If that's true, we got a whole new set of questions. What's heaven look like now? What can I do? Because now I have a different end game. Paul is going to make the argument, I've told you everything you need to know about God. And by the way, people are going to try to twist what you know about the doctrine which with you have been taught. It's going to be at the very end of the passage today. I've taught you everything you need to know about God. I've taught you a little bit about who you are yourself and what you need to be committed to. And now here's your end game. Go invest in people. All right? That's the summary of where we're going. You're about to read it through the 20-something verses in uh, Romans chapter 16. It's all done. We could call it a sermon and, and call it over and we could walk out of here. But I think we need to do the verses and the fill-ins. Right? Because some people will freak out if they don't get the fill-ins. Right? <laughs> Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, I commend you to our sister, Phoebe. Wait a minute, something just happened there. It's not in the fill-ins. It's not really, well, it kind of is in the fill-ins, maybe the first one. Uh, What what just happened that's unordinary? We just went Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the others have ever been before. What just happened that normally would not happen from a man writing to a Roman culture back in first century Christendom? A woman? What? We're talking about women? Why are we talking about women, Right? I'm joking. But in Roman culture, Jewish culture, all that, in that culture, in that day, when you're commending people to someone, men are talking to men about men. And here's Paul. Maybe the greatest teacher, one of the greatest teachers, because he kind of doesn't outrank Jesus, right? Uh, Maybe one of the greatest rabbis. He really knows his theology, and here he's writing counterculture just in who he's addressing. Let me tell you about your sister, he says, Phoebe. And what has he just done to the value of women? In a culture that devalues women, as he's wrapping up, the first thing he talks about is women. I love that, and I love that our God has that sense of irony and sense of humor. Right? So... Uh, This chapter, uh, secondary or or tertiary, that's third, for those of you who are learning vocabulary, a third level of importance, he's going to validate women all through this whole passage. And you're going to be able to argue with somebody who says that Paul was a chauvinist and say, no, because he couldn't have written Romans chapter 16 if he was a chauvinist. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. Wow, she's part of the church. 
now, right? Which is another little side um, acknowledgement or value, right? At Sencrea, by the way, we're going to butcher some Greek names today, okay? <laughs> Just enjoy it. Uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. What did he just call her? She's a saint. Women can be saints now, right? Paul, I don't think Paul differentiates between men and women. I really, I think he just sees us as us. People are people. So why should it be? We should get along so awfully, right? Um, but here's what I want you to do. Take, take notes. Uh, maybe give it a little ticker mark. Uh, how many times are you going to me- mention women? It's not really that important. It's not statistically significant or anything, but it will reinforce his value of women if you know that he mentioned. Somebody took score first service, and we got an answer at the end. We're gonna, we'll keep score again if you want. We can compare answers, see if um, we got it right or they got it wrong or whatever, right? Which will prove my argument that second service is better than first service. Okay. Um, as a saint, and help her in whatever she may need from you. Oh, we're going we're gonna to pay attention to the needs of women. That's awesome. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Why should you be laughing right now? What did you just call her? A patron. What is, pa- like the root of that word, the idea of patron, right? If you were in Latino culture, eh, patron, right? What? Father, this is a masculine term, a masculine title, and he attributes it to a woman. Like he's breaking all the rules, or he's letting you know what the new rules are, right? What is the value of women? And let's commend people and help them with their needs, and let's serve in the church and the whole thing. Uh, Verse 3, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. We've got an argument for house churches now. That's how churches start. Uh, greet my beloved Epinetus, who was, first, who was the first convert of Christ in Asia. Greet Mary. By the way, check, tick. That's another woman, right? Mary, uh, Mary, who has worked hard for you, verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. I'm wondering if that's where Stacy, the name Stacy came from. Don't know. But uh, greet Apelles, verse 10, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristopolis. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet. <laughs> Narcissus, sorry. Uh, greet those workers in the Lord. You know, that first service totally missed that one. <laughs> I love you people. Um, greet those workers in the Lord, verse 12, Tryphena and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also, his, what? All right, check one more. Uh, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, 
Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Julie, uh, Nereus, and his what? All right, there's at least one more, right? You probably should be, you should be in the high teens at some point, probably soon. Uh, Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I want you to think it significant that at the end of a huge theological work, in Paul, instead of Paul saying, now, Make sure you remember this doctrine and that doctrine or make sure you read this book or make sure you pay attention to these teachers or, uh, you know, he doesn't even mention Peter, the head of the church in Rome, right? Still got a building to him there. Instead of all the different ways that he could end the, the book theologically, he starts name dropping. What does that tell you about value? Here's what you need to know. In ending well, I'm going to end my book by making sure you know all the people that I've connected with that I've ended well with and have ended well with me. It's a cool little thing that he does there. Uh, And I think it's for sure significant. I appeal to you, verse 17, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. He says, I just gave you all the doctrine you really kind of need. Now be careful because there's going to be people that contradict it, push against it, and kind of say, eh, well, you don't really have to do this or have to do that. They're going to push compromise. And then what does he say about them? He says, before verse 18, last two words, avoid them. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. It's an important little phrase there. We're going to find out what that phrase means at the end, your third villain, right? I just gave you that sentence right there as the definition for a different word. And we're going to get to that. It's also the verse that we have at the top of the outline. I think it kind of hinges on this. The passage does. Uh, But verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Verse 20 is kind of interesting. It's like we're talking about people and then he's talking about, you know, avoid these certain types of people. And then all of a sudden he goes into Satan. Whose job is Satan? God's. And I just want to do a little commercial here real quick. There's a lot of Christians that get into talk about, well, I'm, I'm being oppressed by the evil one or the Satan's trying to do this or a demon's or there's darkness over or whatever. Guess what? Nothing you do brings that on. And nothing you do solves that either. Is this not your job? And it's not your fault. Satan exists because God created him. And he does what he does because he's got his own motivations. And there's one person whose job is to crush him. That's Christ. So if you ever feel like that's going on or you get in a scenario where people are talking about it a lot, here's your prayer. Jesus, crush him. It's a great prayer. (laughs) Keep me out of this. 
and you crush them. And then you get back to the business of dealing with the people that God's put in front of you and the gifts that he's given you and the calling that he's put on your life to accomplish the things that you can accomplish. Uh, Because one, you never want to fight him. You never want to fight Satan. You're going to lose. And the the promise that we have from God is you never have to fight him because he'll fight that battle for you. Uh, He's really good at fighting, by the way. But let's not be confused as to what's our job and what's not our job. And that's what I think the second phrase is about. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What's that grace referring to? The grace that God will fight the battles for you you can't fight, namely Satan. Or namely the divisive people that he told you to avoid prior to that. Right? There's some things you just, you're not going to have influence. You can't control it. What you can control is you and how you interact with people. All right, so that's verse 20. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Now watch this, verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. (gasps) I thought Paul wrote it. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. (gasps) It's based on a bed of lies. Bible is false. What what do you think just happened? Let's 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 be imaginative, logical adults for a second. What just happened right there? What's that? What'd you say? Stenographer. Which nobody knows what that means except for you and four other people. Right? A scribe? A secretary. Paul has an office administrator. Do are you do you like him a little bit more? He's so important. He has an assistant. Now, all jokes aside, in a passage and in an ending where he's trying to value people, namely women and different workers and people that serve in the Lord and says, hey, value people. How cool is it that he says to Tertius, because he says, hey, why don't you put something in there about yourself? Can you imagine how that dictation went? Paul's like, okay, we're going to talk about grace. All right, now we're going to talk about faith. Write this down. No, no, don't write it that way. Write it this way. Okay, and let's phrase that that way. Okay, now we're going to move on to good works. And no, 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 we can't. He gets toward the end. He says, oh, by the way, Tertius, why don't you put something in there about yourself too? What's he just done to the writer? Made him important. He valued a person. I, I think we got to pay attention to those kind of little things in Scripture and, and, and enjoy them. Right, because that makes me like Paul a little bit more. Not that he has an assistant, but that he values the assistant that's with him. Right, verse twenty-three. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Hey, um, do you want to be Gaius? We're going to have the whole church over your house. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. The city treasurer. What happened to separation of church and state? Which, by the way, is misquoted pretty much every time it's referenced. Paul's dealing with people of influence who do a good job at things outside the church, not just spiritual stuff. In fact, I think Paul would make the argument that being the city treasurer is a spiritual experience. Because it's something we do in dedication to the Lord and we do it with excellence. You know, a lot of people don't realize this. You know, Christians started many of the hospitals we have today. Christians started many of the universities that we have today. Christians used to be at the forefront of technology and thought and ideology and many, many other things. Uh, And then we became religious. 
But we used to have a commitment to excellence. And the deal is that we should be committed to excellence and not just be happy with losing all the time. Because we shouldn't be like the Raiders. <laughs> Talk a good game, but never win. I love that he's dealing with the city treasurer, right? Because now he's valuing people that are out in the community, not just the people inside the walls of his own church. He's valuing people. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Who's that? So now to him who is able to strengthen you, we're talking about God. He's about to say something about God. And watch, this is going to twist real quick. According to my gospel. Whoops. Whose gospel? Who's the gospel about? I had to ask like three times for a service. They got confused. They were all nervous. No, I didn't point at Heitzman, so he wasn't cute. He didn't know what to do, right? Uh, you throughout the Bible, we hear the phrase, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus, or the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, whatever. They're always attributed to God. Only almost... Nowhere in scripture do you find the gospel talked about in terms of someone other than God. Here's one of them. Paul says, according to my gospel, oh no, he's a heretic. Did he mess it up? Whose gospel is it? Ultimately, it's God's gospel. But why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he die? Why did he fight for forgiveness of your sins? Why did he deal with death and win and resurrect? Why did he go through the torture? Why did he do all? Who did he do all those things for? You, me, us. See, the gospel's about Christ, but Paul's decided to take it personally. I love that. See, here generally in a Brock Bible Church service, here's what I'd say. Is it the gospel of Jesus or is it your gospel? And you would say, it's both. I mean, ultimately, we know it's God's and it's Christ. And only he did the work on the cross and only he could resurrect himself and all that kind of stuff. But Paul knows the value behind what God decided to do. It was to save us. It was to prove to us who he was. In a lot of ways, it was for us. And so Paul's trying to explain functionally, even how he thinks and the words he chooses, that the rules are different. Everything changed at Easter. Christmas would have no value without Easter. And at Easter, all the rules changed. And when they changed, Paul said, you know, I think most of God's stuff is really my stuff. Not because it belongs to me, but because I'm adopting myself into all of his stuff and I'm owning his stuff now. It's a great way for him to think about it ideologically in his own head because it helps him with the inner dialogue that's going in here. Right? You having trouble with what you think about yourself? Start thinking like Paul. And preaching, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, it was a secret, verse 26, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings, Oak and Rock Bible Church, Christ-centered, biblically-based, right? Uh, 
has now been made known through the prophetic writings, has been made known to how many nations? All nations. Has been made known. Past tense or future tense? Past tense. Has been made. Past tense, completed action. It's already been done. It's very interesting to me. Because there's other places in the Bible that talks about the end will come when everyone has heard. And therefore, a lot of missionary organizations talk about the idea we got to get the gospel out to all nations and get it known because we can hurry up the end. We can all get to heaven and this, you know, nothing's going to happen until everybody hears. And yet the way Paul talks about it is it's already happened. Gospel has been made known to all people. Now, how does that work? Don't know. No idea. But it makes sense to me in this. We have Paul who understands the, the ability of God, the knowledge of God, and the purpose of God. And that God will accomplish all of his purposes no matter what it takes because he can do no matter what it takes. And so Paul talks about the gospel being out to all nations as if it's already happened. I think it falls in line with Paul's understanding of what does covenant really mean. It means when God says something, it will happen. And he's talking about the value of all nations now, which we love. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Uh, 27 verses to talk about the value of, I think, ending well. And let's get into a couple things. Because I think Paul gives us that list. 16 verses in a row. And then three more verses later when he starts talking about Timothy and, and uh, Tertius and whatnot. Uh, he says, in order to end well, you need to end well with people. That's why he lists all those people. He lists them because they're important, but he lists them because he has relationship with them. And he has relationship with them because why? He cared about them. It came out in his actions over time, consistently, without fail to where they're still interacting. They're not just getting along. They're just not cooperating. They're doing ministry together. They're serving in churches. They're providing for the needs of people. See, Paul, in kind of an indirect way, is saying, here's how you end. You end well with people to where people want to be with you and you want to be with them and you work on it together. I mean, you can know all this stuff about God, and you can kind of be aware of yourself. I mean, psychologists would say you have to have, to have a high self-awareness. Great. With all that knowledge, what are you going to do with it? Paul says all that knowledge was meant for you to then do well with people. You ever been around that kind of person? You want to just be around them more? I just want to get more of them. I really like them, but I want to get more of them. I really like Ed. I wish, I wish I could have one and a half of Ed. Wouldn't that be cool? You find somebody you really like, and it's like, yeah, I, just, I, I like them, and I, I just want to, I want to exponentially increase them. I want one and a half of them. Dear God, please give me one and a half of such and such. Right? Uh, 
You know what I figured out? I can't get one and a half of anybody. But I can't carry myself in such a way that people might want one and a half of me. What kind of actually did figure out a way to get one and a half of Ed. See, Ed Noble, he's been here, preached for us. Ed Noble, pastor down in San Diego, uh, Journey Community Church. And I, I, I love the guy. I, I, I'm borderline stalking him, I think. Uh, <laughs> but he has a podcast, and I listen to his podcast. And, and sometimes I was like, oh, this is so great. I just need to listen to this more. On the podcast app on my phone, there's a little button and you push the button and it goes to 1.5x of Ed. And now he's speaking at one and a half times the speed. He's speaking for, I can listen to more and get more of, and listen to more pod. I can get one and a half of Ed. I've totally figured out. Love it. I've also figured out that I can't do two Ed. 2.0 Ed. And it's, it's too much. I, I don't want two of them. I just want one and a half of them. Right? So I, he, he overwhelms me, and then I, I'm not enough, and I feel insignificant in the whole thing. Um, but there's times where we want one and a half of people. Uh, it's that feeling like when you pick your spouse. I'm pretty sure that's why I married Julie. Because I really like Julie, and I wish I could have one and a half of her. It's really bad math because I got three more and a dog. I didn't get one and a half. I got three more and a dog with the kids. Anyways. Um, but it's this idea that we carry ourselves in such a way that people want more of us. And then verses 17 and 18, it says, now, wait a minute, be careful. Right? I want to entrust to you. And what does it say? I appeal to your brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. They're deceitful, they chase their own hearts, their own desires, the whole thing, they got appetites, they're smooth talkers, and they deceive the naive. I find it very ironic that Paul finishes book saying, care about people, care about people, care about people, here's a bunch of people that I care about and they care about me, and then, oh yeah, by the way, avoid certain people. How ironic is that? As much as Paul loves God and loves people and knows that we should be investing in people, he's figured out that along the way there's going to be people who make other choices that are selfish and they're not about the business. They're not about the church. They're not about God. They're about themselves. And he says, walk away. And I'm fascinated with it because it feels contrary to the purpose of God. And yet Paul says, here, look, here's what you know about God and here's what you know about yourselves. Hold to that. Don't let anybody push against. He, what he's saying, these are non-negotiable. Anybody gets in the way or complains or is divisive or deceptive or whatever, avoid them. And it's the weirdest thing. Because I've met those people. Have you met them? We had a series. Um, I'm going to get in trouble. We had a series a while ago, uh, Ephesians, and one of the discussions in one of the chapters was about divisive and disruptive and argumentative people within the church. And Paul said, get rid of them. And I was talking to our church that day, both services. I said, look, if you're divisive and you're here for yourself and that's it, and you want to complain and you think it's about you and the whole thing, then we need your seat. For the next six months, 
I was blown away at how many people came to me and said, Scott, I don't think that was very nice of you talking about me in church that way. <laughs> I was talking about Paul, what God had him teach the church about how you're supposed to function and that sometimes these seats are meant for people who have yet to know the Lord and want to know the Lord. And if you're in the way, know when you're in the way so that you get out of the way and be part of getting people in the seats so that they can come to know the Lord. But the irony of them thinking that it was about you is like, well, I didn't use your name, but maybe it was about you because you think it's about you. And look, you're here complaining, which is what we were talking Fascinating. And some of them are gone. Because they want to do their own thing. There's something about the church. You know Paul's writing to the church in Rome? He's not writing to anybody. He's writing to the church. He says, church, care about each other. Care about people both inside and outside. How many? All. How often? Always. This is what we're doing. And and he says, as he's closing the book, if you find people who are divisive, here's how you end well. You end well avoiding divisive people. Move out of the way. And don't pick that fight. Be nice. Be loving. Be caring. Because that's why we're here. Kind of two subtle or drastic uh, themes we get in the end of his book, both about people. And then he closes this way. Verse 19, right? This is this phrase, wise to good and isn't it innocent to evil? He says, this is what I want for you, right? What does he want? He wants you to end well, obedient. That verse right there, obedient. What's obedient equal? Obedient equals wise to the good and innocent to evil. Do the best you can. I love this. Paul's taken 16 chapters now to say what Jesus said in two phrases. Love God. Love your neighbor. And you notice the order? Who is God? Who are you? Who are they? It's Jesus' phrase. Paul's just extrapolated it out and defined it in as many ways as he could think of and try to make it logical so that we could follow it. But ultimately, what we're to do is remember that our, our end game is people. And how are we pursuing them? How are we treating them? How obedient are you? Do you know what's good? What is the experience people are having with you? The help at the restaurant, at your table. Did they think you were a good table? Or did they think you were evil? (laughs) Right? Um, Your family, your spouse, your church. let's, let's, Let's hit hard here, ready? Your ex. How do they feel? 
And we can't control all things, but we can work pretty hard at trying to be a 1.5 of ourselves. That's a help to others. And Paul would say, because otherwise, this, all this stuff you've learned about God and, and grace and faith and all that, and that little bit about who you are and buying into the team and joining it and doing what you can, none of that matters. If you don't know how to try to treat people. The rules that you make for engagement with others, do they build or destroy? Do they alienate people? Well, they're not old enough, or they're not smart enough, or they, they have too much hair. Those are divisive things. We're never meant to do those things. We should be looking out. And I, I reference this, and I, I don't know why, but it really stuck to me this morning. When Scott prayed in his prayer after worship, Lord, we're anxious to hear from you. What if you were looking for those anxious to hear from the Lord? And that's one of the lenses you approached people with. How different would it be? Because that's what we're meant to do. See, that's what the church is supposed to be in a lot of ways. And now for transition. We're done with Romans. You ready for the commercial? Over the next six weeks, we're going to start talking about what does God say the church is supposed to be? And we're going to define it, and then we're going to talk about over the next six weeks, how are we going to try to do it as a church? We're going to roll out some of the programs and things that we want to do in reaching people, caring for people, loving God, loving our neighbor. And so we're going to define it biblically, and we're going to, we're going to talk about what are the plans and things that Rock Bible Church is going to try to do over the next year or so, and, and let you see what it looks like. And then, and then the idea is for you not to be divisive or complaining or whatever, but to be excited and jump in and find a way to be involved in those things. And then we're going to ask you to give toward it. Because it takes money to cover things. And that's what we're going to look at over the next six, six weeks. What is the church? And how are we being the church? Amen? Father, thanks for this morning and thanks for your word. Thanks for this book. So many different things, Lord. Just remembering a phrase from many weeks ago, light and momentary affliction. There's so many different other little things that we learn both about you and ourselves, Lord. And I pray that we would take all that you've done in us over this time, even if it was just today, and use it to help us be better with people. Help us to look at what does it mean to end well. And that the end isn't really the thing that matters. It's how we carry ourselves between now and the end. That we'll have people speak of it as either good or evil. So Lord, clarify in our minds your calling on us. And then help us to be obedient. Father, we thank you for the offering that we're about to see. We pray, pray that you would bless it. And use it to help us to be the church you've called us to be. We pray, Lord, that no one feels obligated to give, especially guests and visitors. But recognize that we do this as part of our commitment to you. And we pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.